0: Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast that examines case studies and how global trends are impacting real lives. And today I'm joined with Katya Sanko, a fourth-year Slavic Studies and Foreign Affairs major, and Anna Von Spakovsky, a Global Security and Justice major. How are you guys doing?
1: Doing great. Happy to be back. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: Always, always. Uh, so let's just jump right in. Katya, when you were pitching me this idea, there was one thing that really jumped out at me, and it was kind of that difference between how protest works in America versus how protest works in Russia. Can you, can you clue our listeners in a little bit?
2: Right. So over the summer, I had the opportunity to work at an internship that really closely monitored all of the current events and um, just the most important things that were happening in Russia and Eurasia. And something that we paid really close attention to was the spread of protests, both small and uh, on a massive scale. And what really piqued my interest was the fact that I've learned that there's one main purpose to protest in a Russian context, and that is that it's a main form of democratic feedback. However, as we were observing the protests over the summer, we tended to notice that there were more or perhaps a more diverse range of intentions to these protests. And so I thought that it would be a really cool episode idea if we looked at the history of protests in Russia and the Soviet Union, and we looked at their evolution and the purpose of protest in Russia, especially compared to what we know in the U.S.
0: And that's why I said yes. (laughs) So can you paint me a picture here? Where did it all start and uh, where did it end up?
1: So right from the very beginning, the Soviet system introduced certain contradictions between the way it handled revolution and protest. On one hand, the revolution was born from protests in Petrograd, which is now St. Petersburg, an alliance between workers and soldiers who were returning from World War I. But at the same time, during the Russian Civil War, the Bolsheviks established a secret police called the Cheka, which was a precursor to what people know as the KGB today. They used it to carry out a red terror and to force certain sects of the population into compliance and conformity. So there's now emerged this popular conception that there really weren't protests in the Soviet Union. You know, people have this image of Stalin as an absolute dictator. They look at the Great Terror of 1937. And it looks like to a lot of people like there just was absolutely perfect conformity. But when you look at the history, there actually were pretty consistent protests throughout the Soviet period. Of course, this waned and peaked at certain periods depending on the policies of whoever was in charge.
0: I guess that's how I've always thought of it too, just kind of complete conformity, authoritarian rule, secret police are in the streets at all time. If you step out of line at all, you're You're in the gulags type of deal. Um, But that makes me wonder, what, what did it actually look like?
1: Protests took a lot of different forms. In the early Soviet period, there were a lot of peasant rebellions, and they were rebelling against collectivization and grain seizures, particularly under Stalin in the early 1930s. After Stalin, protests could take more of a peaceful form due to the cultural thaw that Khrushchev began. This started with de-Stalinization. He said what's known as the secret speech in which he denounced some of Stalin's policies and he actually let out um, a lot of people that were in gulags. But during this period, we also see emerge another contradiction, this vacillation between repression and acceptance that the Soviet system was never really able to reconcile. Because during this thaw, there were some dissidents that emerged, in particular, Some people may have heard of Dr. Zhivago, which was a novel published by Pasternak, and it was also made into a movie. Another prominent author was Solzhenitsyn. He wrote a book called One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which was based on his own experience in the gulags. But unfortunately, during this period, we also saw repression of strikes, repression of dissidents and authors. The Sinovsky and Daniel trial of 1966 is a prominent flashpoint in this period They were two authors who wrote short stories that denounced Soviet and Stalinist policies, and they were sent to labor camps, unfortunately. One important consideration in the decision whether to accept or repress these dissidents or these protest movements was the amount of Western acceptance or fame in the Western world that these dissidents were able to accomplish. For example, Alexander Galic was a prominent singer songwriter in the late 60s and early 70s, but he came under significant persecution by the regime and he was eventually stripped of citizenship and deported to France. Now, this is not a good outcome, but it probably would have been worse if he wasn't popular in the West. As the regime moved into the 1980s, Gorbachev began his program of perestroika and glasnost, which basically means restructuring and openness. And this was his attempt to reform the system that he saw as increasingly broken. One legacy of this era and the failure of perestroika and the eventual disintegration of the Soviet Union itself is that people think liberalism in every sphere can't be done because All these reforms and the flourishing of civil society led to collapse and to disintegration.
0: So where does that leave us?
1: When
2: Yeltsin came into power um, and after the fall of the Soviet Union, he tried to implement a democracy in the early 90s, but he unfortunately just uh, released a series of disastrous economic reforms that led to high rates of corruption. He drove higher inequality, high inflation rates, life expectancy plummeted, and quality of life was absolutely horrible during the 1990s. And so my first year that I'm looking at in terms of protest culture and the rise of protest culture in post-Soviet Russia is 1993 with the constitutional crisis. So Boris Yeltsin attempted to dissolve the country's legislature, and that was not within his constitutional ability to do so. And so a series of highly unfortunate and highly politicized events ensued in which the Russian, quote unquote, White House was barricaded and shelled, which led to the deaths of hundreds. Mass protests ensued. And not only in the Kremlin, but also across Russia, people became more politically active. And they protested against Yeltsin, but their intention wasn't necessarily political upheaval. It was just to express their discontent with the regime. And so after the chaos of the 90s, Vladimir Putin, a basically unknown political character, had stepped into power, and his regime was focused on security, especially in an economic sense, and all of his reforms and everything that he did had the intention of assuring stability in the Russian federation. So in contrast to Yeltsin, Putin had a much more authoritarian style. And even though Yeltsin had set up the infrastructure for a democracy in Russia, Putin is still keeping this kind of as a guild, but he has much different structures in the Russian government. And so today we laugh when we hear terms like Russian democracy or Russian elections that doesn't feel right. And this is because although there are elections in Russia, and especially presidential elections, they're not a proper channel of democratic feedback. But is it really elections that gives a country legitimacy? Not necessarily. Rather, all governments still require popular support in order to be considered legitimate. So a mistake that's often made on our end as on a Western scholar's end is that we evaluate Russia's systems and its development as a developing democracy because of this infrastructure that Yeltsin had created, rather than the undemocratic regime that it actually is. And so just to frame our discussion today on protests in modern Russia and in Putin's Russia specifically, we have to look at the Russian Federation as an undemocratic regime that requires different channels of democratic feedback that aren't elections per se.
0: Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying here is it's legitimacy doesn't necessarily lie in uh, a fully functioning democracy, but in other channels that we as Westerners have sometimes overlooked, and that channel being protests.
2: Exactly, yes. And so there were protests over Putin's entire presidency. Through 2003-2004, there were smaller-scale protests over corruption, um, different environmental measures. But the common thread among all of these, through his first two terms— was that they were reactionary protests and they were not mass-scale protests that had any focus on political upheaval. And because of what we just talked about, this new marker of success in evaluation, we should evaluate Putin's legitimacy by his approval rating. He had really high approval through his first two terms.
0: Can you explain exactly what you mean about reactionary protests um, and how that differs from kind of what we have here in the U.S., like we were talking about earlier, kind of more... Big picture protests about morals and cultural values.
2: Yeah, it was protests on, it was reactionary protests on specific issues such as deforestation or import tariffs, foreign automobiles, and just really small things. And they're not kind of like the protests that we see in the West that are on a much more massive scale.
0: And after that, how did things evolve?
2: So people were generally content with Putin's regime and the stability that he had established, However, the largest mass protest in Russian history occurred in 2011 and 2012 with the inauguration of Putin for his third term as president. If you recall, he was the head of state between 2000 and 2008. Then he spent four years as prime minister between 2008 and 2012 while his pal Medvedev was president. And by doing that, he subverted the law against more than two consecutive terms as president. And so he kind of finessed the system so that he could be president again after Medvedev. Russian society was generally not content with this. People became politically aware as protesters organized what they called the March of Millions. And this was a demonstration for just elections, which encouraged people from the provinces to come out to the Kremlin, um, rather than, as they had been doing before, rather than just organizing parallel events at their home respective provinces. So thousands of people came out from a ton of different provinces in order to protest against the inauguration of Putin's third term as president. What happened was there was a brutal police response, which established the limits of protests and the limits of contention really quickly. So it crushed the hopes of preventing Putin's inauguration, and it also crushed the hopes of building up a pressure for regime change, which was actual intention, unlike before that that was the intention of the 2011-2012 protests. So the 2011-2012 protests were a major turning point in terms of protest culture in Russia. What they did achieve was the growth of online discussions. You could see a subculture emerge with groups like Pussy Riot. Kitchen conversations evolved where people were openly critical of Putin and they expressed their dissatisfaction. Um, with Putin and the United Russia Party, and smaller grassroots protests that were more politically engaged started to ensue over the Russian Federation. However, people were still pretty discouraged from the brutal police response from actual mass gathering. So this brings us to this summer, this past summer, the summer 2019, where, as I said earlier, protests had spread across Russia. And the second largest protest ever, the second largest mass protest ever seen, had occurred in Moscow in July. And so this protest was triggered over the Moscow mayor elections, where virtually none of the opposition candidates were allowed to participate in the election. And people took up arms over this and they took to the streets to protest again for just elections and for a fair electoral process. Hundreds of demonstrators were jailed. And among them were famous actors, singers, and journalists, which had gained a lot of social media attention. But what's interesting about the 2019 protests, especially compared to protests in the past, is that it has more of a Western style to it. Between the social media posts and between the hashtags that are ensuing, and especially because the protest wasn't just a reaction to the Moscow mayor elections, but more broadly, against Putin's regime, this was incredibly unique and a new shift in protest culture in Russia.
0: So obviously these were very recent protests, but what are what's the word on the ground? How is this kind of Western style of protest influencing what's happening in Russia now?
2: So from a Western perspective, I think a lot of people have the tendency to embrace and encourage these protests. However, there are issues if Russia starts to appropriate the Western style of protests. The West and the United States' primary channel of democratic feedback is well institutionalized. And although this may be a disputed take, protests in the U.S. is a part of a system of what many call folk politics, which is often, it means that protests are often more habit than solution. More demonstrations of public awareness rather than what they have in Russia, which is reactive feedback. And so if the nature of protests in Russia evolve toward that direction, toward a more American style, then there's the risk that political activism would be delegitimized in Russia. And this is bad both for the Russian people and for the government. On one hand, the Russian people need to continue to voice their concerns, and they need protests as an accurate form of democratic feedback. And On the other hand, the Kremlin also needs accurate reactions to gauge how to maintain legitimacy and support. For example, when I was in Russia in the summer of 2018, there was massive controversy over proposed pension reforms. So small-scale protests erupted throughout my little city that was east of Moscow, and my near-pension age teachers were getting really upset about it and were speaking openly against pension reforms. And so what these pension reforms entailed was raising the pension age for men from the age of 60 to 65, and for women from 55 to 63. So the average male life expectancy for men in Russia is just 67. And so this would mean that the average male would only enjoy two years of retirement. And so there was massive controversy over this, especially because the reforms weren't accompanied with Healthcare reforms, as a lot of people demanded. And so, in order to soften the blow of the reforms, Putin did respond to the protests, but only slightly. And so, instead of raising the age of four women from 55 to 63, he had only raised it from 55 to 60. And because of the disdain for the pension reforms, there was actually a massive blow to Putin's fight for legitimacy. And so, you can imagine that the 2019 protests that have just swept Russia they can be greatly contributed to Putin's decreased legitimacy and the higher skepticism that the Russian people have for Putin.
0: That is a very interesting uh, idea how these kind of larger picture reforms that people may want in Russia are starting to be conflated with these smaller and very seemingly necessary forms of democratic feedback, which heavily influence policy. And it, it really seems like it's almost a function of kind of social media and internet and and westernization in a way. Would you say that's an accurate take?
2: Yes, definitely. The West is influencing protest culture in Russia and also, as we've been closely observing, protest culture in places like Hong Kong as well.
0: I mean, it's it does seem like the, the trend of globalization is sweeping all these different ideas up together and protest culture across the world is changing, just... Um, yeah, like you mentioned, in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, protests have become more prevalent uh, and they've also become a little more contentious. I believe it was like the 2014 Umbrella protests were heralded as like some of the most peaceful protests. Uh, and now we're kind of seeing a bit of a reversal from that. Uh, well, thank you guys for coming out here today. Uh, that was a pretty awesome topic, I, I'd i like to think. Uh, and I hope to see you again soon.
2: Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you. This was fun.
0: And that's all we have for this week. If you liked the episode, be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, subscribe, like, comment, all that jazz. Get our name out there. We want the world to hear us. Uh, We've got a great episode coming up next week. We have Sarah Rocca talking about Venezuela and Puerto Rico and uh, the idea of democracy as a cure-all and how that can be a bit of a fallacy and um, used by politicians to cover up some more of the minutia and we'll see you next week